It's the Perry and Shauna podcast on the real life journey with you, reminding you that you are Abba's beloved child and that Jesus has called you into his massive mission to heal the world. I don't know if you've noticed this, but the Lord is getting thrown a lot of shade in our culture right now for the way that he designed sex, but that's okay. He's willing to reason with us and explain it to us. And so today we're talking about the why of God's design for sex and teaching it to our kids in a explore everything culture. Founder and Mama Bear in chief of MamaBearApologetics.com, Hillary Morgan Ferrer is passionate about providing understandable apologetics resources for busy moms like you. She's the co-author and general editor of the best-selling book, Mama Bear Apologetics, Empowering Your Kids to Challenge Cultural Lies, as well as the recently released Mama Bear Apologetics Guide to Sexuality. When I was growing up, there was the, you know, the talk that was had <laughs> that, that helped you to understand, you know, how the body works and sexuality, reproduction, all of those things. But man, you cannot just resort to a talk today. Tell us about how culture has shifted and what it looks like today to disciple our kids in healthy sexuality, godly sexuality. Yeah. So first off, I think that one of the things that we've kind of missed as a church is really, really understanding the why behind God's mandates. I think when we don't have the why, it always turns into some sort of arbitrary legalism of God just flipped a coin and said, it's going to be male and female. And you flipped a coin, said it should be in marriage. And, and it's like, we don't understand mm. the why behind things. I, I would say two chapters in the book that really go into it. Number one would be chapter three, really great design when followed. And then ironically, the porn chapter really shows what sex was intended to be and how it was supposed to work within a marriage Ooh, tell me more about that. I'm curious about that. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know how graphic I can get. That we'll just say that we'll, we'll call it the climax. There are there are chemicals that are released during climax that really make you feel bonded for life to mm. this person. It's the same. Uh, it's oxytocin. A lot of times for women, there's like some vasopressin also. But if you think about the first time you hold a, your newborn baby, you are flooded with oxytocin, and as every mama bear knows, like you will do anything for that child. And I think we see this kind of happen. Have you ever had someone that you knew that was dating and everybody could tell this was the wrong person, that they just were not being treated well? And everybody's like, how are you not seeing how bad of a match this is? More than likely, there's a sexual relationship going on because one of the beautiful things about a lot of these chemicals that are released, it makes us feel bonded. It also helps us overlook flaws, which can I say in marriage, that's like the best design ever. <laughs> we need it. Uh, you know, we totally do. And so, but um, my husband and I have this kind of phrase called love dumb, where people who are not married, and it's clearly not working very well, but they can't break it off because mm. they form that bond. But then on the on the flip side, you're not meant to break that bond. And so the more times you break that bond, the more times your body gets used to breaking that bond to the point of where you can't maintain that bond anymore. It almost feels weird. And this is, uh, Amy has a really great line in that chapter about how uh, the people who say, oh my gosh, I can't imagine being with the same person for the rest of my life. What they're really doing is lamenting the fact that they cannot make those bonds anymore because wow. they've made them and broken them so many times through the act of porn. Wow, that's powerful. Powerful and painful, right? And just real briefly, God has created the dynamic of the bond for 
What's the reason for that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, number one, healthy individuals create healthy marriages. Strong marriages raise strong children. Strong families raise strong societies. It's this really great model and followed. The other thing is the climax makes you crave the person who you associate that climax with. So you are constantly looking back to your spouse. If that is who you constantly go to, that it actually just brings you back to them Mm. time and time again. Healthy families, I think we could trace so much of what's going on in our society back to healthy families. And I'm not saying everything's about sex, but at the same time, that is a big part within a healthy marriage, which then creates the healthy kids, which creates the healthy society. Which mirrors our relationship with the Lord because we bond with him, we connect with him, and he Mm -hmm. fulfills us in a way that no one else can, and it keeps us coming back for him. When we taste amazing grace, there's nothing else like it. Hillary, how does sex reflect our worldview and how our sexuality and worldview intertwined? Yeah, so there was a book that I read that was really, really life-changing, and it's called Sex and the Supremacy of Christ. And it talked about how our view of God and our view of sexuality are just absolutely intertwined. You cannot introduce a distortion in one without introducing a distortion in the other. And a lot of times you'll even see this kind of like a domino cascade of uh when someone's sexuality starts uh, deviating from biblical sexuality, a lot of times you start seeing their theology mm. kind of go the same way. And the same thing that happens when their theology starts going, you start seeing deviations in sexuality. But in terms of like what our culture is doing right now, just think of it like the big questions of why are we here? Who has the ultimate authority? Uh, what we do? Where are we going? What is our purpose? I think the number one thing what is our purpose? Our culture has turned sex and pleasure Mm -hmm. into the ultimate purpose. And in that sense, like if we are looking at what we were created for by God, our sexuality is so intertwined with that. I feel like it's connected to wanting to be our own God, right? Like we keep, Mm -hmm. we so have in us a desire to rule and reign that we'll even read scripture. And then rather than adjusting our life, according to what scripture says, just the scripture so that it meets what we want to have happen. Yeah. We asked the question, what does this mean to me (laughs) instead of what does this mean? Yeah. We're definitely not saying sex is bad. Sex is God's idea. That's a great place to start, Mm -hmm. that it's God's beautiful design. Sigmund Freud said something like, our spiritual longings are frustrated sexual desires. Ooh. (laughs) But it's actually the opposite. Our Yes, I was just thinking that. Yeah. Our sexual desires are actually unfulfilled spiritual longings. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a reason why, if you think of just people in the act of sex, you know, they cry out to God, shall we say. It is this experience that is so mm-hmm. intensely spiritual. You just think in scripture how it says that Adam knew his wife. There's this type of knowledge that's going on in there. I think Peter Kreft says something along the lines of that the man that shows up out of the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. Culture is discipling our children all the time. So it's not like if we wait to have the talk that the whole thing's on hold. 
until uh-huh. we open up the subject. Because they're Yeah, they're just gonna be blissfully unaware until we let them know, right? We'd love to believe that. It's ignorance yes. and it's naivete uh-huh. naivete and all of those things. But yeah, how in in the climate that we live in today and, and how culture is opening up these subjects for our littles, talk about how we enter into that and when we enter into that and what does that look like? Yeah. So uh, let's just talk about what's going on in culture right now. When you had kid-friendly programming, that usually meant that this didn't have any kind of sexual content. Well, what is now true is not that there's no sexual content, but they have an idea of what healthy sexuality is. And that means accepting all the things. And in order to do that, you need to start exposing the kids to it very, very early, which is why you see stuff like Blues Clues, where they had the pride parade and they're singing uh, these songs about having two moms is just as good as having two daddies is just as good as having a mom and a dad and to the tune of the ants go marching in one it was really weird Mm. Uh, you see it in transformers i mean even even all the kids programming now i think it's interesting that the icon for it is a rainbow (laughs) for kids programming so first off if if your kids are anywhere in culture they're already getting this number two and this kind of goes back to your question about how the sex talk has changed we used to just kind of be up against the idea that sex feels good kids want to do it their hormones are raging and we need to teach them how to control their bodies that is no longer the world we live in. Uh, What we live in is in the national sex education standards. It talks about how you need to be able to explore basically all your options that are available in sexual uh, orientation and identity is not exempt from this exploration. So they're actually encouraging kids to explore and to try out different things, see what they like, don't knock it till you try it. And then we also have some linguistic theft going on, this this concept of Jesus said love. Love means never making someone feel uncomfortable. And so when if any of your Christian beliefs make someone feel uncomfortable, then they say, why aren't you loving like Jesus loved? And, and our Christian kids are going, oh, my gosh, I'm, I'm told to love like Jesus loved. It, this, this really isn't loving. And so we actually have a bunch of Christian kids that are advocating for the things that they would normally have been taught was a sin. So it's like, we just have this big mess of spaghetti. And when, when I first started this book, it was like, how do you organize spaghetti? Like, mm. this is going to be interesting. Back to your original question, when it comes to little kids, how do we introduce this? We have a concept of introducing categories. I find that whenever people have misunderstandings about something, it's because they've categorized it wrong. Hmm. So if you think about maybe as we were growing up, what was sex, you know, what was the category that we imbibed from culture? It started out with, you know, sex is for marriage. And then if you watch the movies, it was sex is for someone you're really in love with and you're committed to maybe engaged to. And then it moved to someone who you're in a committed relationship. Then it's to a boyfriend. Nowadays, if you watch the movies, it's like the moment, no matter how much these characters have been fighting, the absolute moment that they realize, oh, we agree on something. And now we're attracted to each other. Clothes just start flying off. And so this is the category of things I do when I realize I'm attracted to another person or Mm. things I do with a boyfriend or things I do when I'm at a party. This is a category that they have placed sex in. You know, as Christians, we've always done is sex is something for within marriage. But another category that I think is really, really helpful, especially for the littles when we don't really want to talk about all the mechanics of sex is just when they ask, what is sex? You say it's a physical representation of the promise that mommy and daddy made on their wedding day. 
And so you can do something like create a handshake with your child after you've made a promise. And every time either that promise is fulfilled or you're reminding them of that promise, you do that handshake, which would have meant nothing had you not already made that promise. But now they're associating there are things I can do physically, which point back to a promise that was already made. We're solidifying that category in their heads. And so we, we go into in several different places in the book, different categories that you can start creating in your child's mind where they can file things away to where this idea of even having sex outside of marriage, it's, it stops even making sense because it's like, wait, how could I point back to a promise that I never made? It doesn't make sense. It, it almost becomes a non sequitur at that point. And it kind of takes away this don't do it, don't do it, don't do it mentality that you're supposed to flip on a dime right. the second that you get married to the woohoo, we made the promise. Let's point back to it a whole bunch of times today, you know, <laughs> you know, honeymoon, woohoo. It's not a, a switch that has to be flipped. It's a worldview that they had from the very beginning. How do we teach our kids to live out their faith with their LGBTQ friends? So this is one of those things where a lot of times just not hiding what you do. It's like you would be surprised at how people really notice what you do and don't do. And I and I have looked at so many of the passages that talk about people that are under persecution conditions uh, in the in the New Testament. We've got like first and second Peter and all these things. And almost all of them revolve around keeping oneself pure. It's not about having to go out to this pagan culture and let them know that what they're doing is impure. It's actually keeping ourselves pure. And this is a point that I make uh, in chapter one in the book that sexual faithfulness has always been the way that God has set his people apart. Like literally from the time they became a people, he's like, this is how you're going to be different from culture. And this is how culture is going to know you're different. It is a way of creating this bizarre identity that the world does not understand. So I think just living very, very purposefully and not hiding how you are, that says things really, really loudly. Um, They don't have to go out and, I don't know, point out everybody else's sin. I think Mm -hmm. people will automatically notice this. How do we keep our kids from making LGBT issues like this? (gasps) You know, what do you do? It's like, we have to have this whole special conversation. I kind of take uh, in the discipleship workbook, which is basically the study guide that goes with this. I encourage people to get it because I think everybody's confused because I didn't call it study guide. I called it discipleship workbook because it has a whole bunch of activities to do with your kids. But one of them, it's like basically preparing them to meet LGBT people and not freak out (laughs) when Mm -hmm. they do. And it goes through a series of first off establishing a category who is made in the image of God. That category applies to all humans, whether or not, you know, they are have disabilities, whether or not it's a, a baby in a womb, whether or not it's a homeless man on the street, whether or not it's a paraplegic, whether or not someone who's just completely crazy, they all are made in the image of God. Now, puppies, that piece of grass, kittens, you know, delightful as they are, they are not made in the image of God. Only humans are. Then you take it a step further. Uh, how do we treat people making the image of God with kindness, respect, dignity, love, all the things? Now, who is reflecting that image? There are things that can happen that don't reflect the image of God. So you just kind of start finding those categories. Is that something that reflected the image of God? No. Then you make it personal child, you just did X, Y, Z. Was that reflecting the image of God? No, it wasn't. Now, all of a sudden, we're putting ourselves on equal footing of people who don't reflect the Mm -hmm. image of God. And then 
at that point, you can talk about any sin that you want to, because now it is in the category of behaviors that do not reflect the image of God. And they're not hierarchy. Mm -hmm. They're not the unforgivable and the acceptable way of not reflecting the image of God. They all don't reflect the image of God. And you move the conversation from people to behaviors. Mm-hmm. which is so great for all of us to separate our behavior from our identity. Yeah. And I think especially within the LGBT community, they hate, love the sinner, hate the sin. Um, they don't like it. So I think we need to stop saying it, but we still need to keep doing it. I'll just say that. <laughs> <laughs> I have a really dear friend whose daughter has decided that she's same-sex attracted You know, she's rejected the biblical teaching because of what it says about same-sex relationships. Mm -hmm. So this has been really, really painful for my friend and his bride to work through this. Their daughter is pretty firmly entrenched. How do they navigate that with her? What's the best way to navigate that with her? I'd say the number one thing, if she has already rejected God from this, then it's a whole different standard than someone who's saying, I'm trying to embrace God and still have this Mm -hmm. belief. When they've rejected God, I think the number one thing they have to do is maintain that relationship with her. She knows what they believe. They don't need to tell her all the time that she already knows what they believe. And so what she's being told by all the social media, all of the Reddit and all the TikTok is, oh, your Christian family is going to reject you. They're going to toss you out on the street. They're going to want nothing to do with you. So first off, you have to break that expectation. Since she is not walking with the Lord and doesn't claim to be walking with the Lord, you don't put the, hey, you need to repent of this or we can't be in relationship. That passage in scripture where it says one person goes to someone to rebuke them, then bring a friend, then the church, and if not, then treat them like a pagan tax collector. That does not apply here because she's openly saying, I'm the pagan tax collector. So at that point, the ministry just turns to loving her, again, showing that kindness, not agreeing. One of the hard things is differentiating between what is affirming the lifestyle versus what is affirming the person. So, and I know people have different convictions about this. Like if I had a same-sex attracted person who invited me to a wedding, I would probably say, you know, I feel like that's a ceremony between you and God and I can't participate in this, but can we put it on the calendar? You know, when do you get back from your honeymoon? Let's have dinner and game night. So I'm inviting them into my home and I'm inviting them into relationship, but I'm not participating in things. You know, I'm not going to go to a gay club with them to support them or some drag show just because they want to share things that matter to them. And then I get to share things that matter with me. We don't do stuff like that, but we keep them in our lives. And one of the number one things I've said for young people when they're basically told you either accept this part of me or you don't accept me at all. This is the phrase, the conversation that needs to happen. Just, I love you. I want to maintain relationship with you. I'm going to assume right now that I'm not going to change your mind. And you can probably assume that you're not going to change my mind, knowing that we're not going to change each other's minds can we still live in fellowship with one another? Because I still want to be in fellowship with you. If they say, nope, say, okay, I'll respect that. Just say, I'm going to check in with you in six months. So maybe let six months go down the way and say, I really miss you. I still want to be in relationship with you. Again, you're not going to change my mind. I'm not going to change yours, but I still want to be in relationship with you. Will you allow me to do that? At this point is forcing them to reject you. They can't go and say all these stories about how you rejected them. They are the ones that are saying no to the relationship. 
And at that point, you can say, okay, I respect that. Just I want you to know that I'm still here no matter what. And then just check in once a year, however often the Lord prompts it on your heart just to say, I miss you. I, I wish we were still in a relationship. I think that's one of those little gnawing things that defies what the world is telling them about how Christians will reject them. As far as how we're viewed with our our biblical views being different from the world's views and from culture, how do we engage in the conversation where we're we're not seen as hateful, but we're also not seen as tolerant? You know what I mean? Like, how do we how do we do that? Well, yeah, I would say this is one of those things where that tolerance is a linguistically thefted word that uh, we talk about actually in the first book that when someone's like, why aren't you being more tolerant? Let's point them back to the original definition of tolerance, which is living in peace despite disagreement. So what is absolutely required in order to have tolerance? Disagreement. Yeah. And so if someone's asking for tolerance, but they don't want disagreement, they don't want tolerance. They want agreement Mm. or they want you to be quiet. It's like you're allowed to have convictions as long as you don't think they're like really, really for reals true. Like if you're like, oh, this is kind of what I think, you know, but you do you, boo. You know, if it's that kind of attitude, you can think whatever you want. But if you're like, no, I actually think this is true. They can't handle that. They say we either agree or I'm going to call you all these names and make you feel like you're not following Jesus or you're misrepresenting him. You're not being winsome enough. So what, what does it look like? You know, you've got somebody who lives next door to you. And mm-hmm. they're in the LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you want them to know the heart of God. I think the heart of God starts out with having a friendship without an agenda. And so th- there's a, a phrase that I call, in, I think I talk about this in the sexuality book, called spiritual Stockholm syndrome. And so Stockholm syndrome is where uh, someone has been taken captive by someone, but that person who's taken them captive has formed such a bond with them that the person who's been abducted feels a closer bond to their captive than they do to anyone else. And so when you get in a situation like that, you can't just like, you know, point the gun at the captor and take a shot and like, yay, now you're free because that person will fight you tooth and nail to protect their captor. And so we have a couple passages in scripture. One of them says that we need to take every thought captive, but we've got another one. Another one says, uh, make sure that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. So what I think we have, especially in the LGBT is we have a bunch of spiritual captives. They're not a lot of times they're not rebels, they're captives. You'll you'll have the people that are just straight up rebels and just, you know, glorying in their immorality. You're always going to have that. But your average just LGBT person next door, they're being held captive to an ideology, which means you have to come and form that relationship first without an agenda, without bringing things up. If you're a Christian, it's probably going to come up at some point, but having been kind of unshockable and asking them to do normal things, going to coffee, going to the movies, you know, going out shopping, doing whatever, coming over for Thanksgiving. Do you have somewhere to go? People can tell when they're an agenda. They can tell when you have a reason for wanting to be their friend. Sure. And so if we just make ourselves curious people, I think that's the number one way to really make friends. Just be a curious person and know that it's the Lord's kindness that leads to repentance. It's not even necessarily our kindness. Our kindness may help lead them to the Lord, mm-hmm. but then understanding His kindness leads them to the repentance. So we just basically are trying to scoot them away from this idea that they have that all Christians are hateful and I need to protect my identity from these Christians 
like that spiritual Stockholm syndrome, move them away from that identity as being who they are by praising other parts of their identity. And eventually it might be separate enough to where you can have that conversation, but just go in there without an agenda, just to love and allow the Lord to work on their hearts. A lot of times we try to be deputy Holy Spirit. I got your back, Lord. I'm going to help you convict all the people. Yeah, right. (laughs) And we don't allow him to do what he does. And it's like, we've got our job and he's got his job. Now within the Christian community, I would say that's a little different. We're, We're called to hold each other accountable. I would say outside the Christian community, we need to let him move first. And it's amazing how faithful he is in that. You know, I realize in my life, anything can become an idol, something that I treasure more than Jesus. It can be a bad thing, but it can be a good thing, like ministry and career and job. And really, I've found the only way to to deal with the idols in my heart is to treasure Christ above all. Hillary, I know your husband got you a book that really gets at how we can deal with the idol of sex in our lives sex and the supremacy of Christ. And when I discovered I will not be able to see God correctly if I have a distortion in my sexuality, I, you know, gritted my teeth. I was a good Christian girl. You know, I tried to, you know, not have sex until I was married. And all of a sudden, all this like gritting and trying to bear it down when I realized this was going to affect my ability to see God correctly, that temptation went away not because it wasn't there, but because my desire to see God correctly was so far beyond anything that I wanted in the temporal realm that um, now not everybody reacts to this because not everybody has that same motivation, but I'll say that's how it affected me personally. How do you bridge those two? When you see God correctly, how does that, you know, free you up to live out God's sexual design? I would say really God's goodness. So there's two authors that I really like because they talk about specifically same-sex attraction. And that a lot of times same-sex attraction, it's it's not going to be the marquee sin. A lot of times it's going to be a symptom of something else. And I think we present abstinence for same-sex attracted individuals as if, you know, you got to grin and bear it for the rest of your life instead of realizing that the more you see God's goodness the more you're attracted to that, more you desire that, the less you want your sin. And so it's not like we have to go through this whole sexual rehabilitation thing. We need to understand God's goodness because his goodness draws us towards himself. And when we are drawn towards God, we're drawn away from our sin. All those other things kind of stop having as much power. I think about it like in physics, when we think of gravity and stuff like that, that gravity is an actual formula that is the mass of two things and then how close they are together. So we can say that, you know, the sexuality thing is this kind of really big mass, but the closer we are to that, the more we're going to be drawn to that. But God is infinitely bigger than any desire we can have. And the more we move towards him, you actually start losing that pull towards the other body and you just gravitationally start going towards the larger object. Now, I know that's kind of taking more of the science route and putting into spiritual terms. But again, I really think that like almost everything in science is basically a parallel for something in the spiritual realm. I would say that would be one of the number one things, learning how to see God's goodness. In fact, when people talk about God's glory, they all think, oh, well, he's this, you know, some people say, oh, it's this narcissistic God that just wants to be like, come on, tell me how amazing I am. Tell me how amazing I am. That's not what glory is. The word glory means goodness. 
we're trying to show God's goodness, uh, which I think our society is lost because they're not calling our kids goody goodies anymore. They're calling our Christian kids who are faithful to scripture, hateful, hurtful, abusive monsters. Mm -hmm. They don't even know what's good anymore. And so our job is to show the goodness of God and his creation. Thanks for letting Barry and Shauna walk the real life journey with you. The content from the Perry and Shauna podcast comes from their live show, Perry and Shauna Mornings on 89.3 Moody Radio, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Reach out to us by texting 800-968-8930 and please subscribe.